the prophet Isaiah. I invite you to turn your attention with me again this Lord's Day, to this time to the 25th chapter. We'll be reading the entire chapter, Isaiah chapter 25. The late but uh, famous poet, Scottish poet Robert Burns, said that he could not read Isaiah 25 without weeping. And you say, oh no, not another weeping chapter. You know that we have for several weeks in a row been in a section of Isaiah that has not exactly been marked by laughter, at least not godly laughter. Any laughter about which we've read in these recent chapters of Isaiah has been the empty, hollow laughter of men who are rushing headlong to judgment that have their laughter turned into mourning. One person made the comment to me after last week's sermon that that it was downright depressing. Well, judgment such as Isaiah has been prophesying against those who would not and will not bow the knee to God and to his Christ can be that way. Indeed, in a certain sense, it ought to be. It is sad, and hardly anyone knew or has known the sadness and grief of it like Isaiah did. I think we could could very well justly confer uh, confer upon Isaiah the title, The Other Weeping Prophet. The first one uh, known by that name to us as Jeremiah. Of course, it has not been all tears and grief. By the skill of the Holy Spirit at work in him, Isaiah has woven right into these judgments words of salvation and, and gladness for the nations. So much so that we could marvel a few weeks ago and be astounded over the salvation of no one less than Egypt, whom God calls his people, and Assyria. Well, now we come to chapter 25, and as I say, Robert Burns says that he could not but weep when he read this chapter. He'd be glad to hear he did not weep tears of sadness, but of joy and of gladness. It was the exquisite beauty and the soaring notes of hope and of glory that moved him and ought also to move us this morning as we hear these glorious words toward which end let us pray. Father in heaven, let us not remain unmoved by your word ever, by anything it has to say, and certainly uh, when it has to say the glorious and hopeful and wonderful things that it has for us today. Open our ears to hear marvelous things from your word, we ask, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap. The fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. 
You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is our God. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dung hill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. If the last chapter of Isaiah could be called, as we heard last week, Isaiah's apocalyptic then this one might certainly be called Isaiah's Magnificat. You remember the Magnificat. We read it and we sing it every Christmas. Mary's song of praise, the first words out of her mouth when meeting her uh, cousin Elizabeth with the news of her pregnancy with Jesus were these. My soul magnifies the Lord. From which we get, of course, that light Latin title, Magnificat. To magnify. Well, Isaiah here magnifies the Lord too, with the tears of sorrow still hot on his cheeks, as it were. Isaiah's eyes turn upward, heavenward, and his face, recently twisted with the pain of grief, now beams with almost unspeakable gladness and praise and joy and hope. Oh Lord, he says, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. And why shouldn't he exalt God? Why shouldn't he praise his name? And why shouldn't you? Yes, his judgments are terrible indeed. But just as wonderful as his judgments are terrible are his grace and his goodness. Gaze on him, Christian. Gaze on him now through the eyes of Isaiah until your heart too brims with praise and exaltation. Behold, this is our God. Isaiah gives us an entire list, a litany of things to notice now. 
as you gaze upon your God. And we will do well this morning simply to note a few of them along with Isaiah as he exclaims them one after another. Behold, Christians, this is our God. First, behold our God, the doer of all his holy will. Verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name For you have done wonderful things, plans formed from of old, faithful and sure. One of the amazing things for you to remark about concerning our God that you must notice as you behold him, dear flock, is that he accomplishes all his holy will. All that he sets out to do, all that he plans to do, all that he has planned to do from all eternity. Who else can say such a thing? Who of us has ever once accomplished all that we had set out to do just the way we had set out to do it? You know, we make plans to go to the store, and then the phone rings. And we make plans to take a vacation, and sickness prevents us at the last minute. We make plans to be at the airport two hours early, only to end up watching the plane fly overhead from the traffic jam. Not God. Never God. Nothing ever distracts him. Nothing ever prevents him. Nothing ever derails him. Nothing ever even delays him. Nothing ever surprises him. He does all his holy will. Every event that has happened in your life this past week, Everything that's going to happen in the coming week. It's all been laid out, planned out from all eternity, long before there was even a world, before there was air to breathe, before any creature was made. What what in the world, Christian, could give you more comfort, more peace, more satisfaction than than this, that knowing that your God does all his holy will. His plans are never frustrated, especially the plans for his children. And those plans are always good, always, even if they include affliction. That you may come back to him, discipline, that you may draw more closely to him and to love his law the more as they did for the people to whom Isaiah first preached this sermon. Behold, this is our God, the doer of all his will. Behold, this is our God, second, our stronghold and our shelter. Verse 4, you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy. In his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. I don't know that many of us truly understand the power of that analogy that we've just read. That very last one, a shade from the heat in a dry place. I checked the forecast for Baghdad today. They're anticipating a high of 102 degrees. 
And that's good because it's not unknown for the temperature to reach 120 in the shade. Troops today will trek out in gear that includes long sleeve uniforms, flak jackets with ceramic plates in front and in back, and if they've made those changes they talked about making in the sides too. Kevlar helmets, boots, M16 rifles, and more than 100 rounds of ammunition weighing between 30 and 40 pounds. Members of the Special Troops Battalion will pack in coolers about 15 frozen bottles of water in each Humvee, and within the first 10 minutes of their hours-long mission, find them melted into warm water and empty long before the mission's over. Soldiers describe the heat in Iraq like standing in front of a heater with a winter coat on and then someone starts a fire. You feel the sweat going through your boots. You feel your eyes stinging. One Staff Sergeant Pitt said in an interview with NPR last summer that when he arrived in Iraq, quote, I thought I walked straight into the sun. Ask Bill King or Aaron Thomas, and they'll tell you about it. It was only after considering it that I realized that when Isaiah talks here about shelter from the storm, he may well have meant not thunderstorms, but sandstorms of the kind that have been experienced in Iraq this summer in drought conditions. Massive walls, huge of sand making their way across the the landscape, sometimes at 60 miles an hour, sweeping across and sending people scrambling for shelter. The point is, you must first understand the greatness of what Isaiah is describing here before you can truly begin to grasp the even greater greatness of our God. He is our shelter. He is our shade. Troubles come upon us with relentless resolve. But we find our shelter under him. Afflictions burn like scorching sun. But we find our shade in him. Behold, Christians, this is our God. Third, behold, this is our God, the feast giver. Verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He did that, of course, God did, just as he had promised, and just as we saw some years ago in our series of sermons in Nehemiah. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah commanding the people after they had led them back into the promised land from their exile in Babylon. Remember what they tell the people, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord, our Lord. 
and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Isaiah could see from his perspective, he could see that day yet to come, even before the people went into Babylonian exile to begin with. The wine would flow in abundance, and it did. Twice Isaiah repeats it, a feast of well-aged wine, of aged wine well-refined. This summer, my father and I went down into his basement to complete a task that we had begun together back in the summer of 2008. Fourteen months ago, we started with the juice of Shiraz grapes from Australia and a six-gallon carboy. And into the carboy, we poured the juice and then carefully measured the carefully measured amount of yeast we, we added. And by the next day, the yeast was swirling about in that six-gallon carboy, consuming sugar, producing a steady stream of carbon dioxide, what the uh, wine vintners call the angel's portion. A couple of weeks later, when the fermentation process was at precisely the right point, my father moved the new young wine from that carboy into another, leaving the lees behind and corking the, the second carboy. And there it sat from the summer of 2008 until just last month when we returned to it while I was up north. Before we bottled that wine, I took what is known as a wine thief. It's a long glass sterile tube and inserted it into that uh, carboy and drew out just enough to fill the bottom of his sampling glass and mine. We swirled it about to awaken the bouquet and the layers of flavor in that wine, and then I put it to my lips. Now, I'm no great aficionado of wine, but I will tell you this, at that moment, I knew I was drinking great wine, fine wine, rich, aged wine. This was no new wine with the alcohol bite that new wine has or sharp taste. Perfectly smooth, elegant, dark colors, flavors glided over my tongue. Next Lord's Day, the Lord willing, we'll be using that very wine. Well-aged, well-refined in our communion feast in this sanctuary. But even that wine cannot hold a candle to the wine that will flow in abundance at the great wedding feast of the Lamb, at which we will find ourselves much sooner than ever we imagined. Rich, rich food and well-refined wine will deck the table at which we will gather with the saints from Isaiah's day and from Jesus' day and Paul's and Tertullian's and Bernard of Clairvaux's and Martin Luther's with all the saints who have gone before, with all of the saints who have yet to come if the Lord should tarry.
The wildest parties on the earth, the likes of which we read about last week in Isaiah 24, where men toast to today, for tomorrow we will die, will be replaced by a feast where we will never die. I tell you, nobody, nobody throws a feast like God throws a feast. Oh my, what a day it will be. We will find that the hymn writer was only underestimating heaven when he wrote that the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets. And by faith, brothers and sisters, you may begin to taste them even in this life, even now, by beholding our God. Behold, this is our God forth, our God who thoroughly defeats and humiliates his enemies and ours. If we find ourselves even now by faith feasting with God, God's enemies will find themselves in another place altogether. Look at the middle of verse 10. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. You've all been watching out the windows here as this project has gone on and on and on, the never-ending project, it seemed like. We've wondered whether this county would ever finish running a new sewer line through our backyard and the churchyard here. And finally, after months and months of lawsuits and delays and unanticipated problems, uh, finally it appears we will have our churchyard back again. Soon we will receive a letter informing us that uh, we must tie the church building into that sewer line that runs under the ground back there. That will be an interesting project to say the least. Interesting, I say, because no one knows exactly where our current septic tank is and uh, how we're going to find that. And interesting because, well, because we've been flushing into that tank for 20 years. And without a problem, by the way, for which we may fairly praise God. Soon we will be exhuming that tank, or at least opening it up, to drain its contents and to backfill it with sand. Now you know where I'm going. Isaiah is shockingly graphic in his language here. If this chapter were to be produced as a made-for-television movie, there would be a, a warning at the beginning uh, you know, warning some of the images you're about to see will be disturbing. The enemies of God will be cast into the dung. Now that's graphic enough. But for Isaiah and for the Holy Spirit who inspires him, it's not graphic enough. He goes on, verse 11. Cast into the dung, they will spread out their hands and swim in it. That seems a bit harsh to you, a little bit over the top. Maybe not like the God that you thought you knew. 
There are some very simple reasons for that, but the main one is this. You have not yet come truly to reckon with the heinousness of sin. A few of you perhaps have seen the ugliness of sin better than the rest of us. Maybe you've caught a glimpse of it, witnessed something of it in your own heart, its hideousness, its blackness, its putrefying stench in your heart, or maybe you've seen something of its ugliest manifestations in the world, but, but none of us has even begun to grasp what an offense unrepentant sin must be to the thrice holy God whose eyes are too pure even to look on iniquity. I tell you, there is a dunghill waiting for every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who will not repent of his sin, who will not turn in faith to Christ for eternal life. And if this is you, And then you will find your place right next to Moab swimming in the cesspool. Now here's an interesting question. Why Moab? Why Moab? You know, of, of all the people Isaiah might have chosen in this passage to represent the wicked, why Moab? We don't know exactly why Isaiah should have picked Moab. It could be because in her arrogance and pride, Moab had so terribly treated God's people over the years, even refusing them, you remember, entrance through their land into Canaan just to come through. It could be the almost constant trouble that Moab made for God's people, the the raids constantly into the land. But it could also be for another reason. The closeness of Moab to Jerusalem, both in blood and in geography. Remember who the Moabites were? Where did the Moabites come from? From Lot, from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his eldest daughter came the Moabites. So the Moabites are blood relatives, you see, of God's people, cousins after a fashion, to Israel. And geographically speaking, Moab was within eyeshot of Jerusalem. Looking east from Zion, Moab was constantly in their view. In fact, it is said to this day that when the sun shines just right in the evening, it shortens the perspective by intensifying the color and the size of the Moab mountains, and they appear to heave up toward Jerusalem. In many ways, Moab was close to Zion, and yet as close as Moab was to Zion, yet it remained in another kingdom altogether. Though they shared common borders, the ancient Near Eastern landscape, though though Israel and Moab were even blood relatives, they were in different worlds, and so couldn't have been farther apart from each other. One was in covenant with Yahweh, with God, and the other remained in her rebellion. 
And so it continues to this day. You know, two kingdoms exist in the world today. Side by side. They live in the same neighborhoods. They work in the same places. They eat in the same restaurants. They get into the same elevators. They drive down the same streets. They sit in the classroom together. God's children and God's enemies. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan are shoulder to shoulder. Even this morning. Even in churches. But one is in fellowship with God. And the other is in rebellion. One feasts with God while the other refuses the invitation. One will come to the supper of the Lamb and the other prefers to swim in the sewer. In a few minutes, in fact, we'll be at the table. I'll be standing there and we will feast together this morning. But from where I will stand in a few moments at the table, I could take a rock and toss it through that window and land kersplunk if it were opened up in the septic tank, right outside the window there somewhere. The two are literally just feet away from each other, the supper and the septic. But what different worlds they are. Here's the lesson. You may come right up to the edge of God's kingdom. You may be friends with people who have entered that kingdom. You may belong to a group of people who are very close to that kingdom, even on the very threshold of it. But it will do you no good unless you enter it. Listen, all of you who hear my voice now and consider, where will you spend the rest of eternity? Will you dine at the supper or will you swim in the cesspool? And not for 20 years, not for 200 years or 2,000 or 2 million or billion or trillion or quadrillion or whatever, forever. For the rest of eternity, those are the only two alternatives. Either repentance will bring you to the supper or pride will keep you in the septic. In God's name, I implore you this morning to repent and turn to God. Confess your sin to Him. Call upon Him while He is near. Have Him wash Sin's filth away, pull you out of the dung and put the sparkling robe of Christ's righteousness on you and join the ranks of those who say, Behold, this is our God. Indeed, who say with Isaiah, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful.